0: Well, good morning. How are you today? So glad you're here, whether you're joining us here in the house in a podcast later on this week, live online right now let you know that we're going to use a lot of... There's going to be some pictures and hieroglyphics and lots of stuff on the screen. So if you're listening by podcast, um, maybe go check it out on YouTube or use your imagination. Um, every sermon, there's a rule in seminary that you should start with a catchy story or a quippy um, something to, to capture the imagination and draw them in. I don't have time for that today. I have so much to get through, and I am so excited. I'm, I'm literally, I'm so excited about what is in here. There are some things this week and some truths that I haven't fully heard before, and I'm ready uh, to, to give them to me. I'm, I'm excited for you to receive this, and so let's jump right in, okay? Deal? That's the catchy, qui- quippy story. Okay, we left off with God's people, the children of Israel, in slavery, and Moses was on his way back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. He meets with his brother Aaron, and together they go to the elders of um, the Israel, they're the children of Israel, and they tell them the news that God, Yahweh, wants to rescue them and lead them out of slavery. Now, the slaves, they are struck by this and they're gladdened by this. They believe Moses. They believe in Yahweh. And it says they bow down and they worship him. And now comes Moses' big moment. He's returning to the palace, the royal palace. Now you have to catch, this is the very palace he grew up in. Like, like he, you can't miss the drama of this moment as Moses, with his, with his staff, he walks down these, the, the hallways that as a child, he would have run down. He's older now. It's 40 years since he's been back in his old home. But, but as he walked through that place, you would have had to have known that he knows these walls. He knows this place. It would have been a like kind of an eerie familiarity for Moses to return now as a shepherd with a shepherd's staff when he used to be dressed in royal clothes as a prince there in Egypt. He is going to go speak to the most powerful man on the planet, the throne room doors, they open. And Moses, you can, you've got to imagine, he's, he's nervous. He's going to go stand before Pharaoh and make some demands. He walks in in faith and obedience toward the throne where Pharaoh sits in all of his glory. Exodus 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron spoke to Pharaoh. and They told him, this is what the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, this is what the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor In the wilderness. Notice they tell Pharaoh the name of God, that Yahweh says, Let my people go. Now, Pharaoh, he is familiar with gods, he's familiar with goddesses, he considers himself a a god himself. And so his response is telling. He says in verse 2, Is that so? And who is this Yahweh? Who is the Lord? And why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I, I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. There's some irony here at this moment. Moses says that Israel's God, Yahweh, says, let them go. Pharaoh, who believes himself to be a God, is the slave owner of this other God's people. Who is this Yahweh that you have to come ask my permission to let them go? He must not be that powerful of a God if his people are my slaves. No, I will not do this. He says this, get back to work in verse 4, in verse 5. Look, there are many of your people in this land, and you're stopping them from their work. They have lots to do, and you're distracting them with all this Yahweh talk and freedom and worship services. No. Get back to work. Now, I'm going to skip a lot of verses in the narrative today as we're going to move forward in this story. I want to encourage you to attend our 630 Bible study on Tuesday nights. It's right over here in the Gathering Center, and that's where we go deeper into these texts. And you're going to see things that I cover and go deep into those, and you're also going to go into a lot of the stuff that I don't cover and see what God's, what's he saying down in here, because there is a lot in these chapters that I had to leave out. 630, Tuesday nights here in the Gathering Center. Pharaoh tells him to get out, but he isn't done. He's he's angry that the production has paused and that all these things have happened. And so he says this in verse 6, The same day, Pharaoh sent an order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foreman. Listen, don't supply them with any more straw for making bricks. They have to go out and get it for themselves. They have to go out and find the stubble. They have to double their workload and go find the, the straw and then make the bricks. He said, let make the people get it themselves, but still require them to make the same number as before. Don't reduce the quota, even though their work is doubled. This is why, or they're lazy, this is why they're crying out. Let us go offer sacrifices to our God. You know what? Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That'll teach them to listen to lies. To lies. This heavy burden was put on God's people, and in the verses to follow, they are beaten and made to work longer and harder to produce the same quota as before. Pharaoh is punishing them for their request to go out and worship their God for in, the, in the wilderness. And, he, and he, what he's doing here is he's showing them who holds real power over them. It, it, it works. The, the Hebrews are broken down in this moment. And you know who they become angry at? They become angry at Moses. As the, as the Israel um, foremen and elders are leaving the throne room, they run into uh, to Moses. Weeks or days earlier, they had bowed down and worshiped Yahweh and said they believed in Moses, but now they say, May the Lord, may Yahweh judge and punish you, Moses, for making us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. You, Moses, have put a sword in their hands, an excuse to killing us. Like, we're dying out there, and it's your fault. You, Moses, have made everything worse with all this talk. Now, if you're Moses, how are you feeling? How was this supposed to go? Put yourself in, in his shoes. I mean, you were living a peaceful lifestyle as a shepherd when all of a sudden a bush was on fire and God said, He called you to this colossal mission. You had so many doubts, you had so many insecurities, and you verbalized all of them. No, I can't, I can't talk. I don't and then finally, like, just send anyone else. I don't want to go. But God continued to call you and answer every one of your insecurities and said that he would go with you. He's going with you to do things that you can't do on your own. So despite all your doubts, all your insecurities, you said, okay, yes, you loaded up your family, you moved back to Egypt, and and you went on this journey, and you're obeying God. You're stepping out in faith. You go talk to the people. You go talk to Pharaoh. I mean, imagine this. He's walking in obedience, he's walking in faith, and what's the result? Complete failure, like complete failure. Not only that, it backfired, it's worse. Pharaoh's mad at the very people that he's supposed to rescue, and now they're mad at him. Those slaves that had once worshipped Yahweh, who believed him, now, they don't believe him at all. They They want Yahweh to judge Moses. Pharaoh's angry, the Hebrews are angry, and they're angry at Moses. Moses is standing there with his staff wondering, why in the world did I even say yes to this journey? This is not how it was supposed to go. He was to obey, and then God was supposed to come through and do all his part, right? But, but this was a disaster. God, this is the opposite of what I thought would happen. In fact, Moses goes to God and listened to the tone and timbre, and l- listened to the accusation and the disappointment in his words. Moses went back to the Lord and protested, Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came here to Pharaoh as your spokesman he has been even more brutal with your people and you have done nothing to rescue them. Why did you send me? I have done what you said. You have done nothing. I did my part and you the god of the promise aren't keeping your promise. Can you can you hear the disappointment can you imagine the disappointment to move your family, to step out, to step back into this, this place and to, to demand some of Pharaoh and it just blow up and backfire? Can you imagine the doubt and desire, the weakened faith and the desire just to leave? You know, I, I don't need this. This is real for us too. This is true for us. When you step out in faith and obey God, there are times where it happens right there. And God moves and powerful things happen. But sometimes, and it may be that the process of redemption and the process of reconciliation takes a little more time than we want it to. So Moses is in this with us. And so when Moses is here, what does he do? When he's in this crisis of faith... When he has a weak faith and he's, he doesn't know where, where to turn, where does he turn? Does he turn to Aaron and try to get some wisdom? Does he, does he pursue the elders of the children of Israel and like try to convince them again that he's a good guy and the mission's worth it? Does he go back home? What Moses does in this faith crisis, I mean, he had trusted God, he obeyed God, and the results weren't what he thought. Where does he go with this faith crisis? And I'm gonna ask you, where do you go? Where do you go when your faith is weak? Where do you go when God doesn't seem like God's coming through the way that you wanted him to? Well, Moses goes to the correct place. He goes straight back to God. He takes his doubts. He takes his disappointments. He doesn't squelch them down. He brings them back with him and offers them to God and speaks them to God. And the next verses, here's the, uh, here's the response that the Lord gives Moses. Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let my people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised to give them that promised land of Canaan, where they were living as foreigners, but you can be sure I have heard the groans of my people who are now slaves in Egypt. I am well aware of my covenant with them. Moses, I, I know exactly what I promised them. In this little section here, where Moses has weak faith, God's response is seven I will statements. I will bring you out from under the Egyptians. I will free you from the slavery. I will redeem you by my hand. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to a promised land and I will give it to you. The God of fire, the God of passion, stokes Moses' crumbling faith. But notice what God does not do when Moses' faith was weak. He doesn't say, oh, oh, Moses, you got this, buddy. You know what? Just go try a little harder. You're good enough, Moses. You're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people are going to like you by the end of the story. He didn't say, you need more faith, Moses. He didn't say, pray a little harder, Moses. Start going to church more, Moses, and, and don't sin No, no, God doesn't talk about Moses at all to help build Moses' faith. Instead, God reveals his nature. He speaks of himself to reveal and restore and refresh Moses' faith. Is your faith weak or failing in places? Go to the correct place. Like Moses, go to God and be honest about those places. Be honest about your faith, where your disappointments are, where your struggles are. Seek God in his nature, in prayer and in his word, because it is in knowing God more that our faith increases. Self-help does not grow your faith. No, seeking God and knowing him more does. So Moses gets this fire from God, this, this awakening of faith. as He, he gets this, these seven I will statements, and he is stoked back up. And what does he do? He goes back to the children of Israel to tell them what he just received. Oh, they're going to love this. this is, now this is big stuff. He goes and he says, listen, God is amazing, and here's what he's going to do. And what's their response in Exodus 7 verse 9? They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They're like, that's great, Moses. We're glad you talked to a bush earlier, and we're glad you talked to the same guy again. But we don't have time for it. The Hebrew word here for discouragement, is a, it means a shortness of spirit, an impatience in their spirit. Listen, times are hard, Moses. We don't, have, we don't have the time to wait for God to come help us. They wanted freedom now, but God was saying there's going to be a little more of a process. You and I are in this with them. You know that, right? There are places where we want God to move and when do we want him to do it? Now. When do we want him to do it? Now. Like, you know, it's like a chant, like a rally. Like, God, we want you to move and we want you to do it now. I mean, we want God's miracles with, without God's methods. We want the win, but we don't want to have to wait for it. We want the product, but we don't want God's process to get us there. We want the result of God, but we don't want any resistance we want the gratification, but no, but, but, uh, no, 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 no more spiritual grit to get there. We want God's blessing without God's character building. Like, we want God's ends, but we are tired of the means. Give it to us. We have been in slavery long enough. I've, I've been hurting long enough. I've been in this place long enough. I want it Now. It's difficult, but I resonate with, with them there in this. Moses is walking in faith and he has a message that God is going to release them and bring them freedom. He takes it to them, but they're too consumed with their own life to truly listen. Moses is having a rough time. Pharaoh won't listen and he's mad at him. The children of Israel won't listen. He goes back to the only person who seems to listen to him, his God. He goes back and says, and, and guess what God's response is? God says this, okay. Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of the country. God, that's how I got here in the first place. You want me to go back? Did you you see what happened the first time? The bricks and no straw, and everybody's mad at me. Everyone's mad at me. You want me to go do it again, double down? God, this doesn't make any sense. God is building something into Moses here that is a very difficult lesson in life. Obeying God when we don't want to. Obeying God when we don't feel like it. Obeying God when it seems ridiculous. Obeying God when people don't approve of us. Obeying God when it might embarrass us. Obeying God despite any external variable or how we feel. That's a difficult schooling. And he's taking Moses through it. Moses can't fathom this working. And he says as much. He says, Moses said said to the Lord, if the Israelites... Your own people won't listen. Why would this foreign King Pharaoh listen? But God says a promise in verse 5. He says, listen, when I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Moses, I'm going to do something so powerful that, that there'll be no doubt as to who the true God is. And by the end of this, Moses, you will know who I am. My people will know who I am. And even these Egyptians will know who I am. So Moses and Aaron, they go back before Pharaoh. Now Moses is in the, he's behind Aaron. Uh, Aaron is his spokesman and Aaron is, is acting on his behalf. And so they walk back in there, and this time, Pharaoh demands something. He demands a miracle. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, okay. so here we are again. Okay. Um, so you have this God, Yahweh. If he's a God, he obviously has some power, so, so show me something. If he, if he can do, if he's powerful, show me his power. And what happens? Aaron, or Moses, Moses hands Aaron his staff. Aaron gets the staff, and Aaron throws it on the ground. And what does it turn into? A snake. We tried it the first service, and it, it didn 't turn into a snake, so i'm skip it for everybody else, but um, this was the first miracle that God chose to perform to reveal his awesome power to Pharaoh, turning a stick into a snake. Did you ever stop and ask why? Did, have you ever really like God, you could do anything why why did you? Why, 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 the, why the stick snake thing? Like, uh, why did you choose that to be your first miracle of power to reveal yourself to Pharaoh? You, you could have just skipped to the front of the line. Now, this is the question that earlier in the week led me to do a lot of digging. And this is what I'm excited to talk to you about. It starts at level one um, with a scholar named Ray Vanderlaan, my favorite biblical teacher. He gives us some amazing historical context on this moment. He says this, that many times when you see Pharaoh depicted in ancient Israel, in Egypt, with artifacts or or statues or hieroglyphics or gold, whatever it it would be, um, Pharaoh is holding some things in his hand. And there's always one thing in particular he's holding in his hand. It's a staff, a very specific staff, a shepherd's crook. It's called a heka, and we have some pictures of it. You can see that he's going to be holding a heka in his hand. It's that curved shepherd's crook. This is the symbol of Pharaohic authority over the people who are his sheep. That's his symbol of divine governing over his people. Pharaoh has a very fancy staff that symbolizes not only just his authority, but his divine authority. Pharaoh isn't just a king, remember? He's God in this culture. The Egyptians have a pantheon of gods, but, but Pharaoh is a key part of what makes the whole structure spiritually work. It goes like this. There's specific gods and goddesses for all different kinds of things, from, from, from fertility to, to harvest to protection to dirt to water. Like, and so there's this question. Will the sun rise tomorrow? Ra, the sun god, will do so if Pharaoh does his part that is needed. Will my child be born healthy? Will the goddess of fertility will do for us, the people, what we desire if Pharaoh comes through and does his job as God? Will the Nile flood and be bountiful this year? Yes, the God happy will come through if Pharaoh performs what we need for him to perform for us. You have to see the Egyptians, they look to Pharaoh as their lone hope to sustain the balance in their life. Like, my, if I'm one of those people back then, my life, my family's protection, the Nile, our harvest, the peace, all of it, all the order and balance required has to go through Pharaoh. Do you see how they must have looked at him? Do you see the place he held in their lives, how important he would be to them and their family, their livestock, their harvest? They need Pharaoh to save us, save them and sustain them. He is the God King who holds the Heka, the staff in his hand, symbolizes the divine power that he governs over the people and brings order and balance. It's a beautiful, ornate, golden staff, which makes me ask, who else has a staff in this narrative? Moses. But Why? We go back to Exodus four. Moses is in front of the he's in front of the burning bush, and God very specifically says this: "Take your staff with you." It's kind of curious. He could have took it, he could have taken anything. He could have gone without it, but God wanted to make sure that that uh, Moses had a staff with him. So Moses holds a shepherd's staff. How, how fancy is this, Hekka? It's not built for power. It's not ornamented. It's built for practicality. It's built for, to, for sheep to, to move them. It's built to defend them. He leans on it. It's got grooves on it. it he, it's it's, it's chipped at the bottom because it gets lots of use. He, he doesn't use it because it's beautiful. He has it because it's practical. It's as normal and natural as a rock, it's a long stick. That's what his Hecah is. Nothing fancy about it. So you have to imagine the throne room of Pharaoh, the God king of Egypt, the most wealthy and powerful man on the planet at this time. you got to imagine his throne, the glimmer of gold everywhere in this room, the opulence, the light, the the orderliness and cleanliness. And there's Pharaoh on the throne, shaved head, crown upon him, his, his perfect dress, everything about it. Pharaoh sits in security and divinity. Pharaoh sits in power and he knows it. He is unrivaled and unmatched on the planet. And he holds with him his Heka, his his staff of power, perfectly made to symbolize his divine rule in this kingdom. And at the far end of the throne room, the doors open. And in comes walking a shepherd. And with every step the shepherd takes... There would have been a distinct clack on the throne, on the stone floor, as another heka entered the throne room. The heka of Yahweh. It's as plain as simple as the person who held it. And the shepherd who holds it is about to demand that the God-King on the throne release the slaves. But Pharaoh, he must have scoffed at this. He's going to show this shepherd what true power looks like. But, but Pharaoh's about to find something out. That it's not the, in the Heka that's the power. It's the God behind it. God has Moses bring his staff all the way from that burning bush for a reason. And we're going to see it over and over. I want you to remember this sentence I'm going to say. God is speaking Pharaoh's language here. It's important for you to see that through this day and next week in the plagues. God is speaking Pharaoh's language with the staff and with many other things that happen. What we're about to see is a war of the gods, a clash of power, a confrontation between Pharaoh and his pantheon of gods and Yahweh, the God of Moses, the I am that I am, the greatest, uh, the, the, the greatest powers of Egypt, both natural and supernatural, versus Moses and his God. So Moses arrives, and he's got his staff. And Pharaoh waits, and he has his staff. And Pharaoh demands a miracle. Moses hands Aaron his staff, and Aaron, acting and speaking on his behalf, he throws it on the ground, and immediately it turns into a snake and a serpent. Talk about a miracle. But Pharaoh's not impressed. Read verse 11. Then Pharaoh called his own wise men and sorcerers. And these magicians, these magicians, they did the same thing with their magic. They threw down their hekkahs, their staffs, which also became serpents. Now, we don't know if this is some Egyptian parlor trick or if there is actually supernatural power behind the Egyptian priests. What we do know is God declared in Deuteronomy 32 that the idols and, the idols and gods that they, the people were worshiping were actually demonic in source. So it could have been that there was some spiritual power at work that wasn't the power of the true God. But so far, we have the Egyptian magicians outpacing the God of Moses. Moses has one staff and one snake. Well, the Egyptians, now they have many snakes. Check out verse 12. Then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, remember, this is the staff of Moses from Midian. Aaron, on speaking and acting on his behalf. Now, we read over that, and we assume, don't you, that, that, uh, that um, Moses' staff Moses' snakes swallowed their snakes. But look again what the author said. Look, this is important. Intentionally says this. Aaron's staff swallowed up their what? Their Hekka. A shepherd's staff from the desert, which Aaron cast down, swallowed what? Their staffs. You have to see the drama in this for those people present who knew the culture. Remember, God is speaking Pharaoh's language here. Oh, you have a Hekka, the symbol of power and authority? Your priests and your me- me- uh, mystics, they have their Hekkas, their symbols of their gods of magic and might? The ordinary staff of Moses, representing the power of Yahweh, swallowed all of them up. Whose Heka was more powerful in that throne room? The God of Moses. That's the first level. Let's dig another level deeper. Pharaoh's staff, his Heka, was given to him by Osiris as a symbol of divine power. But Heka is also the name of a god in Egypt. You see, Heka is the god. Of miracles. What did Pharaoh demand of Moses? Show me a miracle. Chapter 7, verse 8. Show me a miracle. Show me an act of wonder by your God. Heka is both the name of his staff, but also the Egyptian God of miracles, who they're demanding to see one from Moses. He asked Moses for a miracle, and God uses a Heka, which was aimed directly at their God of miracles, named Heka, But why would the Heka turn into a snake? Again, it could have turned into anything, right? Could have done anything with it. Because the god Heka, whenever he's depicted, always carries something in his hands. A snake. You see, a staff, a Heka, a miracle, a snake, all of it, all of it swallowed up by the god of Moses. Now, you can't think for a minute this wasn't intentional. And you can't think that Pharaoh and his mystics are missing this? These mystics who are the priests of Heka, the god of miracles, who perfor- oh, we, we performed a miracle, and then to get their miracle swallowed up. Pharaoh watched Moses' shepherd staff, his symbol, his simple symbol of power, be transformed into a servant, which our God holds in both of His hands. The God Heka, which means that Yahweh is mightier than the God of miracles, Heka. Why else would it turn into a snake? Let's go one more level deeper. One of the oldest and most powerful goddesses in the entire uh, Egyptian pantheon is named Wajet. Wajet is the snake goddess, symbolized as a serpent. Now, Wajet's job was very specific. Do we have a picture of her on the left up there? That's her. She's all throughout the hieroglyphics and all other places. Sometimes she has wings, but she is formed, she's in the form of a snake, a cobra. Now, Wajet, this oldest and most revered goddess, she has one job. To protect and guard Pharaoh and the nation from foreign deities. The goddess Wajet, her only cause is to protect the Pharaoh and the nation from foreign deities. What do you think it symbolizes when the goddess that's supposed to protect Pharaoh and the nation from foreign gods gets swallowed up by another god in the very throne room. Yahweh is greater than Wajet, the protector of Pharaoh, the very one who protects you, Pharaoh, the very one who protects the nation that you depend on. Swallowed up. Let's go one more level down. Did you know before, before Moses even cast his staff on the ground and it became a snake? Before that, there was already a snake in the room. There's always a snake in the room when Pharaoh's present, because there is a serpent on his crown called a Ureus. Always. It's in the carvings, the statues, the hieroglyphics. We have some pictures of it. It's the Ureus. It's the symbol, this cobra ready to strike. It's the symbol of Pharaoh's royalty and divine order. Listen to this. There is pyramid texts that say the god Geb awarded the cobra to Pharaoh as the legitimate holder of the throne of Israel of Egypt. He gave them the cobra to Pharaoh as a symbol that he's the legitimate holder of the kingdom of Egypt. More than any other symbol, the ureus marked out the royalty of ancient Egypt. It was worn on the crown of the forehead of Pharaoh. This is the symbol of his rightful ownership of this nation. It's also the symbol of Wajet's protection above Pharaoh, a cobra ready to strike any god or deity that would come near him. It was a crown that declared for Pharaoh, I am God king, I am divine, I am powerful, I am secure, and I am protected. The goddess Wajet, protector of the Pharaoh and the nation from foreign dignities, swallowed up. The staff of the priests of Heka, God of miracles who carried a serpent, swallowed up all swallowed up by a plain wooden staff carried by a shepherd prophet who didn't want to be there and didn't want to talk. Do you see the God of the Bible communicating here to Pharaoh? Do you see that he's speaking their language? Are you catching the drama that's just beginning to unfold? Can you fathom the thoughts in that throne room as Pharaoh and his priests, they watch after God, after God, after God is is, is defeated? Can you imagine their thoughts and their feelings? The protector goddess defeated, swallowed up. And then this is just the start. We have the plagues to go. And I heard someone say last service, they're like, I've never seen a preacher so excited about plagues. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to be deep in some study this week. We're going to see Egypt's gods versus Yahweh, and it's going to be an epic battle. But what do we do with this today? Like, like what do we do with all of this, all of that? How do we apply that to our life? First of all, we have to know the same God who is working here in power in Moses' life is the same God who wants to work in your life. The same God that freed his people through these acts of mighty power wants to free you and loves you. He is Yahweh. Yahweh. He takes people like Moses, and look at Moses, a murderer who's insecure, who battles weak faith and battles his doubts and doesn't have a degree in seminary. And he, he, all he has is an old staff and a willing heart. And his he mighty works through him. And God wants to take what you have and how he's put you together and what you think you lack and your insecurities and your sin, and he wants to do mighty works in you and through you. And if we could be a little more honest, if we could be honest today about this, We need this powerful God to show up in our lives. In some places, we probably don't talk about that often, especially not in a place like this. In a room this size, and with those listening online, there are marriages considering right now divorce and calling it quits. You see, which means we have husbands and wives who need the God of the Bible, the God of might and the God of power to come through for them and restore their heart and restore their marriage. We have fathers in this room and online who need to return to their children's lives. We have mothers who need to return to their children's hearts. We have adult children, prodigals who are wandering far and wide, and parents and grandparents in this room just broken in prayer for them. We have younger children in the peril of making damaging decisions and taking damaging paths. We have anger and bitterness in our own life that lashes out at those that we love and hurts them. We have addictions and vice that hold us in the pit. We have anxiety that thieves from us the joy that we want to experience daily. We have depression that is stealing the light from our hearts. We have illnesses that have robbed the fullness we once had in our life. We need a powerful God. We need an Almighty God to reveal Himself in power to us, to move in us, to move among us, to move through us. We, like these ancient people, we need the great I am Yahweh to say, Watch what I'm gonna do in your midst. That's what we need. Watch what I'm gonna do in the midst of your marriage watch what I'm going to do in the midst of your mental health. Watch what I'm going to do in the midst of your greatest sin. Watch what I'm going to do in your life. Watch what I'm going to do through your life. Watch what I'm going to do in your family's life, and your children's life. Watch and see what the power of Yahweh can do. That's who he is, and that's who we need. So if we could be a little bit honest, we would admit there are places where we have great need for this great God. And so what do we do? What do we do? Just like those people then, we cry out now. We cry out now in private prayer. Yes, we cry out in worship. I want you to cry out in this place on Sundays when you stand and sing, have it be a cry out to to, to the God who is great. Orchard, may your heart begin to cry out for God to, to, to move in those places where you know, you know you need him. May we cry out and see that God is greater than any enemy we think we have. He is greater than our current hardship. He is sturdy in our storms. He is strong in our suffering. He fights for us even in our fear. He is Yahweh, the I am that I am, the mighty God who delivered his people, who showed acts of power unrivaled. And his son Jesus, our Savior, who gave his life on the cross for our sin, for our forgiveness, for a, pa- a new pathway forward, and his spirit who's present inside those who know Jesus. And I wanna let know, you know that this mighty God, he is at move. He is on the move in this church, he is on the move in our midst. So we honor Jesus in communion today. We're gonna to honor him in communion for his mighty act of sacrifice, what he did on our behalf. We're gonna honor him in worship as we cry out, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let me pray for us. God, we ask that you do a mighty work in our church, in us. God, I ask that you would save and heal our marriages. I ask that you would protect, protect and return our wandering prodigal children. I ask that you bless and guide those small children right now, even in those classrooms. God, I pray that you give us the freedom that we've longed for for so long and the peace that we hope for. God, we ask you to do a mighty work in our lives and in our church, in our midst. We see today you are the God who can show up in power and we ask that you do so. We ask this in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.